Okay, I want to read you Philippians 3 as our Bible reading for today, and then I'll read another psalm and we'll get started into the ser ser sermon. <clears throat> and I'm sorry, you know, my, my arms get longer every day, so I apologize for this. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, meaning that he is a Jewish person and received the right of circumcision of the stock of Israel. He is one of the 12 tribes. Um, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the noted tribes for several reasons in the Bible. The first king of Israel came from Benjamin. Um, also, uh, the tribe that was almost completely wiped out due to disobedience got down to 600 people, and eventually it came back as a people, and several other reasons why Benjamin is of note in the Bible. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the, the cream of the crop in the Hebrew society. He was uh, concerning the law of Pharisee. He was of the highest order of the uh, religious sects. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He went out and he persecuted the church, showing what a great Israelite he was. And he's saying all of these things are what I was. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may hold of that for which Christ, lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is in their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The word of the Lord from Paul's hand. And we have one more psalm today. And then we're going to start into the sermon. Psalm 96. Oh, sing praise to the Lord, a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens 
Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all the fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. The word of the Lord. Okay, I've gotten in the habit in the recent weeks, and I kind of enjoyed this, so I'm going to do it again this week, is giving you a couple things from this day in history before I actually preach. Uh, in 1686, on this day in 1686, does anybody know what happened? You didn't check this day in history, did you? I know somebody's going to start doing this and catching me on this. The first volume of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica was published. This is a three-volume set that eventually came out, all three volumes. It describes the laws of energy, the laws of motion, the laws of uh, uh, gravity, and these come from the hand of Isaac Newton. And if anybody here knows, Isaac Newton is considered by all scientists, only dolts that are scientists don't believe this. So he is the greatest scientific mind in all of human history. He is held above all other scientists. The Bible says that Solomon was the wisest person ever to live. But wisdom is not intelligence. Although they're similar and they do rely on each other, Isaac Newton was probably the most in greatest intellect of all humans ever to live. And he wrote a great deal on mathematics. In fact, what he wrote was so far above most people that it would take many, many, many lifetimes to do what he did in a single lifetime. And what's important about Isaac Newton isn't that he wrote so much about science and that he held so fast to uh, scientific principles, is that what he wrote about science was dwarfed in comparison to what he wrote about theology. He spent more time in the Bible than probably any of us combined ever will. He wrote more on theology than any of us could ever imagine. He spent much of his life in Daniel, the book of Daniel, and a great deal of that in Daniel chapter 9, and particularly in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And he, he believed that those verses held the key to all of what is coming in the future. This was the greatest intellect in all of human history, and yet he was a, an avowed Christian. And so I would like to give each person here a chance today. I don't know who has called on Jesus and who hasn't, but I would like to give you a chance to think this through because uh, science never, never contradicts the Bible. If there is a contradiction or a conflict between the two, it is the science which is faulty, not the Bible. And I would like to give a challenge to you over the next week. Any person here that can provide me one shred of evidence for evolution, one piece of evidence for evolution. If you can do that, bring it to me and I'll present it here next week at Church on the Beach and I'll tell you I was wrong, but you will not find a single shred. That's why it's called the theory of evolution is because there's nothing to back it up. Now people will argue this, but when it comes down to facts, there are none. So keep that in mind that Isaac Newton, the greatest intellectual mind in the world, was a Christian. He wrote about theology and here is what he had to say about these issues. The most beautiful system of the sun, 
planets and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. All variety of created objects which represent order and life in the universe could only happen, only by the willful reasoning of its original creator, whom I call the Lord God. This is the greatest scientist in all of human history, and he acknowledged that there is a creator and that you can know him personally. And we'll talk about that at the end of the service. 1914, somebody else did something. Can anybody tell me what happened in 1914 on this day? It affects everyone here, I guarantee you. William H. Carrier, he invented and patented on this day the air conditioner. He's an air conditioner man. There you go. And we're going to know more about air conditioners in the days ahead, I assure you. And then in 1947, one other thing, which is relevant because my son Thor just showed up. Uh, something happened in 1947 on this day. The Norwegian anthropologist Thor Heyerdahl and five others set out in a balsa wood craft known as, anybody know the name of the craft? Kontiki. You got it. That's right. The Kontiki. To prove that, and believe it or not, it fits in perfectly what we've been talking about for the past two weeks and what will happen today. He set out in a balsa wood craft to prove that the Peruvian Indians could have settled in Polynesia. They began in Peru and it took 101 days to complete the crossing of the Pacific and it just happened that that is something we've been talking about and we will continue to talk about today. The migration and separations of the people around the world and how it all points back to chapter 10, the table of nations in Genesis. Now going on, in one of the first sermons that I ever did, as a matter of fact, the first sermon that I ever did at Grace Baptist Church, I quoted the preface to the Gideon's New Testament Bible. And it's a good thing to be reminded from time to time about things like this. And so today, I want to quote that to you again. And as I do, I would like you to listen to how the author, who is anonymous, so delicately and yet rightly describes the Bible and what it means to each of us. Here's what he says. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven is opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, it will be opened at the judgment, and it will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. These are beautiful words which came from a contemplative soul, one who clearly understood the greatness of God's word and the depths which it delves into, the very mind of God and the very heart of Christ. I decided to quote this today because the Bible does reveal different things and they may affect us in our walk at various times in our life. It is filled with many 
major subject areas. And one of them is one which all Christians should cling dearly to, and that is its grand subject, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. From the earliest words of the Bible, and I mean this sincerely, if you know the sermon I did on Genesis 1-1, or if you've been in my, Pat over here has been in my uh, Bible class many times, maybe Connie was for Genesis 1-1, I spoke for three hours on it, and just so that I wouldn't have a revolt and get shot, we moved on, but Genesis 1-1 reveals Jesus Christ. These words, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashmaim ve'et ha'aretz. In the Hebrew, if you study it, you will find Jesus Christ in those seven words. And I have always said that if I finish up my education, I will go for my doctorate, and I will do a doctoral dissertation on Genesis 1-1 alone. And I guarantee you that no matter how many hundreds of pages it is, it will be insufficient to describe what God has placed in those seven words. You would be astonished at what is contained in the seven words of Genesis 1-1. But from that verse, right to the last sentence of the Bible, the very last sentence of the Bible, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. He is on prominent display. He is the center of our focus and the center of our faith. And he is the one who reveals the unseen creator to us. In the process of going through the stories of the Bible, there are specific ways which God reveals himself to us. And when we look for these keys during our studies, we can see how he opens each new passage that comes to us. I call this progressive revelation. You've probably heard me if you've been in some of these sermons say that, progressive revelation. In other words, God is progressively and succinctly revealing himself in a way which makes very complex issues understandable, even to adult like me, okay? Step by step, as we go through the Bible, we make a journey. We're journeying through this weaving path of God's. And just like opening door after door after door to get to the inner sanctum of a building, we go through the Bible and we open one door after another until we reach the very heart of God and the inner workings of his mind right there in the Bible. In this progressive revelation, there is a particular way that God narrows What's, what he's doing, leading us down to Jesus Christ. And I was going over some sermon notes by a guy named Ray Steadman, and I'm going to quote some of them at the end of this uh, sermon today. And he used a term which nicely summarizes one particular avenue of revelation, and so I'm happy to adopt his terminology into my own. Now, some people will call it a branch or a tree with branches, but he calls it God's funnel. As you know, a funnel is used to narrow the path of something, maybe like a liquid or a powder or pebbles or sand or whatever. And it, what it does is by using a funnel, you take something broad and unwieldy and you direct it into a definite and a sure path. And God uses this funnel type of pattern through much of the Old Testament to eventually direct our attention to a particular event and a particular person in human history. Along the way, as he's going through this funnel, he will go through branches off of the main shoot of the story, such as Genesis chapter 4. If you remember that, we talked about Cain and what happened to him, and it mentions his line. And after that, after going off onto such type of branches, they re return to the main line, and it proceeds downward through this particular funnel. We left the ancient world behind in the flood, and then we started out in a new adventure with Noah and with his three sons. They are Shem. Ham and Japheth. We talked about Shem, I'm sorry, Ham, uh, Japheth two weeks ago, Ham last week, and we're going to talk about Shem today. 
But after he noted these people, he went into a branch about what Ham did to his father Noah, and then he went into what Noah did as far as cursing Canaan, his son, and the blessings of his other sons. After that, we came to chapter 10, and we read about two more branches. We read about Japheth and Ham. And now God is going to refer, return today to this funnel with Noah's second son, who is Shem. Now, I'd like you to remember this type of pattern as you read the Bible, because as you do, and you see these branches, when they're mentioned, they will somehow affect the funnel, and then it will return to the funnel. But these branches are there for a reason, and we'll see one or two of them today. Eventually, this funnel is going to come to the person of King David, and God's promise to him about an eternal kingship through one of his descendants, a promise which forms our text verse for today, which is 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought in this sermon is blessed be the Lord. The funnel that leads to Jesus, which started in Adam, it went through his son Seth, and we followed it through the ten generations from Adam down to Noah, and now it's going to narrow again through Shem, who received the spiritual blessing and primacy over Noah's other sons. Here's the curse and the blessings from Noah. This is probably the eighth time I've done this in the past few sermons, but this particular curse and blessings affects every single person on this earth today, as I've demonstrated over the past two sermons and will continue today. And it also affects the rest of the entire layout of the Bible. One curse and blessing from one man, which comprises three verses. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. And we've seen this fulfilled literally in these sermons. Now going back to a previous sermon, we saw how Noah's words here have come true in each case. And it is the line of Shem which leads to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and then to David. The funnel narrows and branches come in and they come out of focus each step of the way. But the main line of this funnel is always maintained. Now the question is, why is this information so important and how do we take it in? What is the meaning of doing it this particular way? And I guess the question that we could ask is God arbitrarily choosing certain people and rejecting others. Is he showing favoritism as his, narrow, his funnel narrows? And the answer to that question is not as easy as a simple yes and no. God has a plan to reconcile the entire world back to himself, and he is doing it through real people who really lived. But along the way, he gives insights into the human condition and what does and does not please him. When we get to the book of Ruth, and that'll probably be a few years away, I'm sure, but when we get there, we're going to see a story about a real human family. They really lived, and they had real tragedies. If you've read the story, 
before I go on, I'm just going to say this because it popped into my head. Ruth is four chapters long. It is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature ever written in human history. So beautiful that when Benjamin Franklin was overseas, he was in France and he was in a society of people that didn't believe in anything, but he went and joined them because they talked scholarly things when they met together. And uh, he brought in a story like they all did from time to time and he presented it and he took the book of Ruth and he changed some names in it uh, so they wouldn't know it was from the Bible. And when he was done, they said, that's the most beautiful story we've ever heard. Where did that come from? And he says, from the Bible. It is that beautiful. It will take you about 15 minutes to read, maybe 20, and most people have never even looked at it. And yet there is more about Jesus Christ in the book of Ruth, picturing him, every name, every location, everything that happens points to Jesus Christ. I think I did a study with Pat. I may not have, but if I did, she would know. It is the most astonishingly beautiful story in the world. So please read the book of Ruth. But there are real tragedies in there, and there are real joys in that particular story. And one main character of this book, which is Ruth, who the book is named after, is outside of the line of Israel. She's from the line of Moab, a people that are opposed to Israel. And yet she is brought into this line, and she eventually becomes an ancestor of Jesus Christ, listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. So the question is, was there favoritism in her case? No. There was a response to faith, just as there was a response to Abel's faith when he made his offering and a rejection of Cain's when he made his because Cain lacked faith. At the same time, there is a sort of favoritism involved in the people as we go through the Bible as well. Once God establishes his covenant with a group of people such as Israel or we establish one with him as the people of America, there are benefits that go along with the establishment of that covenant. They partake of the blessings of that covenant whether they individually have faith or not. The rains would fall on the disobedient sons of Israel just like it fell on the obedient sons of Israel. And it watered their crops and they got all the same blessings as the people that didn't believe anything. Likewise, the disobedient would often receive the same protection from God that the, the disobedient would get that the diso I'm sorry, I got that backwards. The disobedient would get the same protection as the obedient, if you see what I'm saying. Today, here in Israel, going over there, if you go over there, there are people that have called on Jesus and there are people that have not called on Jesus. Some of them in the future will and some of them in the future won't. But God has returned all of the Jewish people to their land and they all benefit from his grace, every one of them. So in a physical sense, God seems to show favoritism, but in the spiritual, each has to come to him individually by faith. But guess what? This is the same for all people of the earth. None of us deserves to be born at all. Some of us are born into nice families, and some of us are born into bad families. And some of us are born into nice locations like Siesta Key, Florida. And some of us are born into places like Nowheresville, USA. I went all around all 50 states two years ago, preached at every capital in America, and as I went, I went to some really crummy places. I hate to say that, but there were some really Nowheresville places. And that's just the way it is. The world may seem arbitrary and unfair in this way, but the book of Ecclesiastes explains it right here. It says, I returned and saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time. 
like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Time and chance, that is where each one of us stands, even if that time and chance was directed by God. In other words, the chosen line, God's funnel, which leads to Israel, is a microcosm of the world at large. And as I said, some people will receive the blessings physically, but they have to come to God individually. In the end, whether Jew or Gentile, unless we approach God by faith, we have no true share or inheritance in him. All we have is the temporary earthly blessings which will fade away when we die. Paul explains this in the book of Galatians, and he uses Abraham, who is the man of faith, as an example of this faith which leads to favor. Here's what he says. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That means if you don't have faith in Christ Jesus, you are excluded from that faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I, my daughter dated a guy one time and uh, he was deaf and uh, I finally got through to him. I asked him, uh, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And he says, oh yeah, my uh, grandfather was a preacher. And I told him, you know what? Your grandfather is not going to get you into heaven. You have to get yourself into heaven by faith in Jesus Christ. There are no coattails to ride on the trip to glory. It's either faith in your heart in Jesus Christ or it's exclusion from it. And that's what the Bible teaches. And that brings us to our second thought today, from Shem to Eber. Back in chapter 9, we looked at this particular verse. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Now, when we were back there and I read you those, I said to note the part that said Ham was the father of Canaan. No one named Canaan had ever been brought into the story until that point. He'd never been mentioned. And so we knew that he was a key in understanding something that would later happen in the Bible. And he would be a central point of focus when we got to it. We're about to see the same thing happen again. Listen and see if you can pick it out. And the children were born also to Shem the father of the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. The table of nations has discussed the line of Japheth and the line of Ham, and now it turns to Shem, the son with the spiritual blessing which came from Noah and the line which is a part of God's funnel. And the first thing we see in this godly line of Shem is the mentioning of Eber, who hasn't been mentioned at all until this point. And as unusual as this might sound, Eber is the great, great grandson of Shem. And yet, despite this, he is brought into the picture at the same time that Shem's sons are mentioned. One of 70 names which is mentioned in chapter 10 of Genesis, which is the table of nations. Following this key, we can know that Eber will be mentioned again and that he will have importance in the story as God's funnel is directed towards Jesus Christ. Eber means yonder side or if it's a verb it means to pass or to cross over something this name is going to become very important later in the bible i'll give you a clue it's about the time of abraham also in this verse right here it says 
that Shem is the brother of Japheth the elder. In other words, Shem is the brother of Japheth the elder. Now, one thing that I always recommend when I do Bible studies, and we got several people that used to attend my classes, and they will agree with this, I say bring in different translations. Bring in whatever translation you want, and when you notice a difference, call it out. Say, my Bible doesn't say what that Bible says. That's from the New King James Version that I just read. It says that the brother of Japheth the elder. In this verse, the NASB and some other translations say, also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. This is an incorrect translation because Shem is younger, not older than Japheth. Pay attention to these details because they are very, very important in what God is doing in human history. It says, we're going to see this in Genesis 11, not next week, but the week afterward, that Shem was 102 years old after the flood. Noah had his first son at 500, and the flood was one year long. This means that the firstborn had to be Japheth. And little things like this, they might seem unimportant, but they aren't. When we look at how different things happen in the Bible, it all becomes relevant. The difference between Shem being the firstborn or not is important because it comes under the doctrine of, and I've said this in at least eight consecutive sermons, the doctrine of divine election. God has passed over the firstborn in order to continue his funnel through his chosen line and not by order of birth. And that points to Jesus Christ directly. And you have to remember divine election if you're reading the Bible and to understand what God is doing and why he is doing it. We talked about that a great deal on the resurrection service and I'm not gonna go through it today, but it's a very important thing. The second replacing the first. Verse 22. The sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. Shem means name or fame. He is the father of all of the Semitic people of the world. Today this includes Jews, it includes Arabs, and it includes others. So when we hear the term anti-Semitism in the American society, we almost always say it's applied to Jewish people. But it is far more encompassing than that. We have a Jewish person here today, we have a couple of Arab people here today. And if I say, well, those dumb Arabs, I'm being anti-Semitic. Or if I say those dumb Jews, I'm being anti-Semitic. They all belong to the line of Shem, which is where the term Semitic comes from. So keep that in mind. After Shem, the Bible mentions his five sons. The first one which is mentioned is Elam, which means eternity. And he has led to the people who are the Elamites and the Persians today. Ashur is mentioned next. His name means a step or strong and he has led to the Assyrians and the northern Iraqis who are in the Middle East today. The next son is Arphaxad, which means I shall fail as the breast. And I know that sounds kind of goofy, but it's an important name for certain reasons. His descendants have become the Chaldeans, who are mentioned in the Old Testament. If you know the Chaldeans that are mentioned coming against uh, Israel, uh, the Chaldeans who uh, Daniel went up and he worked with as far as the Magi, I'm not the Magi, the, uh, the uh, soothsayers and all that, the Chaldeans is who that's talking about. It also is the southern Iraqis of today, and believe it or not, our fact set is also the people who are the Hebrews today, the Moabites and the Jordanians and other groups of people which come from this general area which is still relevant in history today. The fourth son mentioned is Lud, and his name means strife. They have become some of the groups in Asia Minor and North Africa. And the last son mentioned here is Aram, which means exalted. They have become the people around Syria, Lebanon, and some other spots in the Middle East and Africa, etc., areas around there. All of these people have come from Shem, 
and they are still, all of them, very active figures on the world scene today, and they're going to be more so in the years ahead. From Shem, the three major monotheistic religions of the world have come from. Christianity, the correct one. Judaism, the unfulfilled one. And Islam, the wrong one. Verse 23, the sons of Aram were Uts, Hul, Gether, and Mash. In 1 Chronicles 1.17, the four sons of Aram are actually listed as sons of Shem. There's a reason for that. Don't get confused if you ever put that together. One of the sons, Uts, is certainly an ancestor of Job, of the book of Job. Because we read in chapter 1 of the book of Job, there was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. It's not known with certainty who wrote the book of Job. But it's if it is written by Job or by someone from his tribe, then it is a very, very rare work in the Bible. Because that book and only two others were written by non-Jewish people. Anybody know what the other two books are that were written by non-Jews? We know that Luke was not a Jew. And he wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And these two books make up almost an, an entire third of the New Testament, which makes his writings exceptional in the Bible. Does anybody know how to tell that Luke is not a Jew? Because there are websites that say that all the books of the Bible are written by Jew because Paul says it in the book of Romans, when in fact, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, the New Testament didn't exist. So that's a specious argument to begin with. But besides that, in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, Paul gives a list of people. And then he says this, These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Only after saying this does he bring up Luke and some other people, meaning that Luke was not of the circumcision, which means a Jew. Chapter 4 of Colossians, keep that in your mind because it's an important thing when you're talking to people about the Bible and where it came from. That brings us to our third thought, though, which is the nations of Shem. Verse 24, our Foxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. Here now we will see where God's funnel leads from Shem to his son Arphaxad, and then down the line. First, the sons of Shem were mentioned, just a verse ago, and after that came the side branch, where the sons of Shem's son Aram are mentioned. And they were specifically listed and named there because the sons of Aram play such a large part in the later pages of the Bible as they come into interaction with the people of Israel. Even to this day, we will see that biblical uh, prophecy being fulfilled in these sons. Verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name was of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Jaktan. We'll stop at this verse to mention one of the sons of Eber, who was Peleg. Unlike all of the other names in this account, Peleg alone is mentioned with specific information. It said, for in his days the earth was divided. This has to be in there for a reason, and only one reason can be right. So I'm going to give you two possibilities, and then we'll tell you which one is the correct one. The first, the reason why I say this is because there are websites that argue these things, and they say, well, it's probably this or it's probably that. We don't need to probably. The Bible explains it. The first is that the earth was divided, meaning the physical earth and the continents. This is a very popular view concerning Peleg, because we've all heard of continental drift. The world started as Pangaea, and then it was broken apart into continents, and they drifted apart. 
Okay, this view is held by many people and they say that's what's being referred to here. The land masses divided and then the people along with the land masses were separated in that way. Now support for this particular view is that in Hebrew, the name Peleg means division or to divide, but in Greek it means sea. You've all heard the term archipelago. The Greeks called the Aegean Sea the archipelago named after Peleg. The second possibility though isn't land division, it's that the earth was divided according to people groups, languages, and not geography. Now which is the correct view and why? Can we tell? Peleg is Shem's great, great, great grandson and was born 100 years after the flood in the year 1758 Anno Mundi or from creation. And we know this from the Genesis account which we're going to see in two weeks in chapter 11. It records all of the generations of Shem down to Abraham and between chapter 10 where we are and that account in chapter 11 is mentioned what we will talk about next week, the Tower of Babel. And that is what we are going to be talking about and reviewing is in between these two accounts. This account then, the Tower of Babel, is placed between these two specifically to tell us that that is where the division came from, by languages and people groups and not by land. So there you have the answer. In other words, the division of the world when Peleg was alive is mentioned dividing the world that way by languages and this is exactly why those accounts are put in that order. And we saw that previously with the Nephilim. People want to know who the Nephilim is? Well, we got an answer because we took two accounts that were separated and there in the middle is the resolution to that particular dilemma. God is progressively revealing himself to us in the Bible and he's showing us what is occurring and why. If we jump ahead then we get the wrong information. You need to start at the beginning and you need to evaluate one branch at a time and return back to that funnel. The Tower of Babel occurred during Peleg's life and the nations of the earth were divided accordingly. Peleg, as I said, means division or to divide. There's your answer. Verse 26, Jatan begot Almadad, Sheleph, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havla, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Jaktan. This is the brother of Peleg. And their dwelling place was from Misha as far as you go toward Sefer, the mountains of the east. Jaktan means small. And he may have been a small guy, but he had a big family. Try saying that eight times. The people that are mentioned here are found east of Israel to this day. They settled around Arabia. They settled around Yemen and eventually up as far as the Indian Ocean, as far as India. And last week we learned about Sheba and Dedan, who were sons of the line of Ham. In this verse, one of the sons of Jaktan is also named Sheba. And so we're not 100% sure which is the ancestor of the famed Queen of Sheba who went to see Solomon. But what could be, and this is only speculation on my part, is that there could have been intermarrying between the line of Ham and the line of Shem and so the Shem mentioned this in this account is mentioned based on the name of their ancestor from Sheba and Dedan in the line of Ham. If that's the case, then both of them are ancestors of the Queen of Sheba. All speculation, just wanted to throw that in. Verse 31, these were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. Now a second ago I said that Shem will be brought up again in chapter 11. This is to show God's funnel as it's being directed from Shem down to Abraham, who is the man of faith. 
he is going to become the example in the Bible of justification by faith alone. And that's what Paul uses. In other words, there's nothing else that saves us and reconciles us to God but faith in what God himself has done. Once again, I'll bring that up again at the end of the sermon. He has been, God, working through history and time. And he's been slowly unfolding this beautiful plan. And so we skip over it or we pass through it too quickly at our own great loss. And even with the many, many details that we've looked at over the past three weeks in chapter 10, I assure you this, we have only touched on the vast amount of information that is available on these three groups of people from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But despite this, we are at our final verse of chapter 10. I'm almost about to cry because I've loved this so much. And we are at our last verse for today. Verse 32. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations. And from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Noah, if you remember, came into the scene way back in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. And this is the very last time that we're going to hear about Noah until much later in the Bible in just little accounts. He is quietly departing from the Bible in a verse which speaks more of his sons than it does of him. He's going to be mentioned again in 1 Chronicles in the genealogy of the people of the world as they lead to the Messiah. He's going to be mentioned again in Isaiah and in the book of Ezekiel. He's going to be mentioned by Jesus. Jesus is going to speak of the flood of Noah and he's going to speak of Noah. And that means that Noah really was a real person because either Jesus Christ is a liar or he really existed. There are no other options. Either Noah was a real man and the flood really happened or Jesus Christ is not who he claims to be. But he's going to be mentioned by Jesus. He's going to be mentioned by the author of Hebrews. And then finally, he's going to be mentioned by Peter. Noah was a man of faith and he was a faithful man and he is acknowledged as such by God in his eternal word. In the end, the lesson of Noah is one that each one of us needs to take to heart. God loves the people of the world. He really does. And he will carefully and he will tenderly look after each one of them as they faithfully and by faith call on him and trust him for their safety and their deliverance. From Noah to the mentioning of his sons, we see a transition. And in this transition is a division of the world. All people come from Noah. We've talked about that a couple times. And from him, we take one of three routes. We either come through Shem, who is the spiritual son. We've got a son of Shem right here. We come through Ham, who is the physical son, the one of physical achievement. Or we come through Japheth, the intellectual son. That's where I come from. Most of us here come from Japheth. Unfortunately, I didn't get the intellect, but that's okay. We all come from one of those three lines. Now, I will turn to the writings of Ray Steadman, who I said I'd quote earlier in the sermon. I want to quote him now. I'm going to give you his reflective thoughts on how these three sons of Noah point to us as individuals and members of the human race, a race of people created in God's image and for his glory. Here are the writings of Ray Steadman. There are three divisions of mankind as there are three divisions in man, in you. To each of these divisions is given the responsibility for meeting one of the basic needs of man, spiritual, physical, and intellectual. In each of one of these, the same three divisions are found. We each have a capacity to worship. We each have a capacity to reason. And we each have a capacity to create. Now I'm going to stop here and I'm going to say that I don't like the word create. We don't create deadly. 
God creates, we produce. So one word in Ray Stedman's writings I'm going to amend and I'm going to read the sentence again with my amendment. We each have a capacity to worship, we each have a capacity to reason, and we each have a capacity to produce. These are the things that distinguish us from the animals. This is the image of God in man. Each of them needs to be held in perfect balance. The world is in a state of confusion, uncertainty, and despair because the balance God intended has been left unfulfilled. So in your life, you are in a state of confusion, despair, frustration, weakness, or whatever it may be because you have neglected to fulfill the threefold capacity of your own nature. You can only do so as they are kept in perfect harmony, one with the other. It is wrong to think of man as essentially spiritual. And we have people that go off into Buddhist monasteries, and we got Christians that go off into their monasteries, and we got people that, they're, I'm just Mr. Spiritual, I'm, and that's all they do. He says that's wrong. They are also intellectual and physical. It is wrong to think of him being essentially physical and to develop the athletic abilities to the neglect of others. In other words, we've got all these athletes with heads full of meat. They don't think things through, they work on their bodies, and when they get old, their life is over because they had nothing to cling to except their body, which is now worn out. He says, man is also spiritual and intellectual. I'd like to bring up Arnold Schwarzenegger is a good example. He's this hulking guy, and he's also intellectual, but he neglected the spiritual. And you've seen what it's cost him in his own life. We are, have three differences in us, spiritual, physical, and intellectual, and all three have to be kept in balance or we get our lives into trouble. Going on, he says, if the order of scripture obtains for the individual as well as for the race, the order within us is also Shem, Ham, and Japheth. First the spiritual, then the physical, then the intellectual. In that order, mankind finds its complete fulfillment. If we understand ourselves, we will also understand the world around us. The glory of the gospel is that it addresses itself to mankind exactly on those terms. We find ourselves entering into fulfillment, into excitement, into a dramatic sense of being what we were intended to be. When we open our lives to God through Jesus Christ, making that our first priority, then developing the physical life, taking care of the physical needs, physical demands, and through these working together to develop the intellect to an understanding of ourselves. Thank you, Ray Steadman. I can't think of a better analysis of chapter 10 of the Table of Nations. And now that we've read the account of Noah and the Table of Nations, I'd like to give you again, I did this two weeks ago, an overall brushstroke of the curse and the blessing of what Noah did. Okay? I did this. One of the people that watched the video emailed me and he says, oh, I disagree with you and here's why. And he had misunderstood what I said. So I want to be a little clear on what I said. Noah gave a blessing to his son Shem, which was a spiritual blessing. And then he gave a blessing to his son Japheth, which included participating in that spiritual blessing. Okay, in other words, something that Shem does in human history, Japheth will pick up and do. And this is revealed. I was laying in bed and I realized this as I was laying in bed thinking through these three sermons and I haven't seen any other commentary that comes to this conclusion. And yet I assure you, the Bible is laid out according to Noah's blessing. Let me see where I was. Even though Genesis comes from before the calling of Israel, okay, it is a part of the Torah or the first five books of the Bible which were received at Mount Sinai. And you go all the way through the Old Testament from Genesis all the way through 
Israel is the focus, and Shem, the son of Noah, is the one who carries this spiritual banner. He is the one that is taking care of the oracles of God during this time. And then you have the first three gospel accounts. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in those accounts, we see Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament on our behalf. In other words, what is said there in those three gospels accounts is under the Old Testament, and it is directed to the people of Israel. It is not directed to the church. It was not until the night of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that he said, I establish this new covenant in my blood. So all of those three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you cannot insert the church into them. It doesn't work. And that's why our theology gets screwed up, is because we're trying to insert the church into the gospel accounts. In the New Testament, Paul says that the church and our life in Christ is a mystery that had not previously been revealed. The Gospel of John comes in after that. And although it's written mostly under the Old Testament concepts, it mixes in New Testament concepts, such as John 3, where it speaks of being born again. So we have this mixing of these two. There is a transition being made from Shem to Japheth in the Gospel of John. After John is the book of Acts, and it completes this transition. Acts starts where? We said this, it starts in Jerusalem. And it ends where? It ends in Rome. The first 12 chapters of Acts, I said this in a previous sermon, I'm going to justify it now. The first 12 chapters in Acts can be subtitled the Acts of Peter. The, from 13 to 28 in Acts can be subtitled the Acts of Paul. I'm going to show you some of the parallels from Acts. And God put these parallels in here to show a transition from Peter, the apostle to the Jews, to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. First one, Peter's work began by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 13, Paul's work began by the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, Peter was thought to be drunk and then explains himself. Acts 26, Paul was thought to be mad and then explains himself. Peter's first sermon begins a new section of the book, Acts 2. Paul's first sermon begins a new section of the book, Acts 13. Peter has a time of work, preaching, and then persecution, Acts 2 through 11. Paul has a time of work, preaching, and then persecution, Acts 13 through 19. Peter has trouble after hearing a man, healing a man lame from birth, Acts chapter 3. Paul has trouble after healing a man lame from birth, Acts chapter 14. Peter says, I, silver and gold, I have none. Acts 3, Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold. Acts chapter 20, Peter's shadow heals somebody. Acts chapter 5, Paul's handkerchief heals somebody. Acts 19, Peter is arrested in the temple and taken to the Sanhedrin. Acts 4 and 5, Paul is arrested in the temple and taken to the Sanhedrin. Acts 21 and 23, Peter confronts Simon the sorcerer. Acts 8, Paul confronts Elymas the sorcerer. Acts 13, in Acts 5, Peter performs an exorcism. In Acts 16, Paul performs an exorcism. Peter raises Tabitha from the dead, Acts 9. Paul raises Eutychus from the dead, Acts 20. Peter lays his hands for the reception of the Spirit, Acts 8. In Acts 19, Paul lays hands for the reception of the Spirit. Peter is worshipped in Acts 10. Paul is worshipped in Acts 14. Peter is imprisoned with a miraculous escape, Acts 12. Paul is imprisoned with a miraculous escape, Acts 16. In Acts 12, angel stood by Peter. In Acts 27, an angel stood by Paul. Acts 10, Peter is called by vision to preach in Caesarea. 
Acts 16, Paul is called by vision to preach in Macedonia. In Acts 5, Peter's success brings Jewish jealousy. In Acts 13, Paul's success brings Jewish jealousy. Acts 9, Peter heals the bedridden Aeneas. Acts 28, Paul heals the bedridden Aeneas. Oh, I'm sorry, father of Publius. In Acts 6, Peter ordains deacons. In Acts 14, Paul ordains elders. And finally, Peter is filled with the Spirit in Acts 4, and Paul is filled with the Spirit in Acts 13. It couldn't be any clearer what God is doing. He is moving the spiritual banner from the Jewish people to the sons of Japheth. And along with these many parallels, Paul says in his writings four times that he is the apostle to the Gentiles and that Peter is the apostle to the Jews. He says that twice. Right after Acts, which ends in Rome, comes the book of Romans. The baton is passed from Shem to Japheth and they will carry that spiritual banner for 2,000 years while Israel is under punishment for rejecting their Messiah. And Paul's last letter is Philemon, which is followed by what? By Hebrews. The letter is written to the Hebrew people, and after that comes James, which is written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, the Jewish people. And then immediately after that, we have Peter's letters, and he writes to the pilgrims of the dispersion, the Jewish people. He even writes from Rome where Acts left off. After these letters, the letters of John are reintroduced, and they are similar to his gospel, forming a transition of understanding the Old and New Testament concepts. And right after that comes Jude, which is a near summary of the book of 2 Peter. It, it's almost identical to it. It speaks on identical themes. And finally comes the book of Revelation. The first three chapters are directed solely to the church. Israel's never mentioned. The last three are from chapter 4, verse 2, to 19, when Jesus Christ returns, is directed solely to Israel. And then in chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22, we see the millennial reign of Christ from Jerusalem, and it's a mixing of the Old and the New Testament saints. And then they go off into the eternal state. So you can see this blessing of Noah is so hugely important to the structure of the Bible. If you stand back and you look at the overall picture of the Bible and his curse and blessings to his sons, it is Japheth who remains in the tents of Shem. Shem is here and Shem is here and Japheth is right in the middle. The Christians carrying the banner of God for 2,000 years. That's what's been going on, and the Bible makes this picture for us. Shem is the banner carrier of that spiritual legacy from Genesis all the way up to Acts 13, 12, and then from 13, we have Japheth carrying it, and then it goes back to Shem. And this will literally be fulfilled, going back to Shem, at the rapture of the Church of Jesus Christ. When that occurs, then Shem will have the banner again. And we already see this being lined up in the world today. The Jewish people are back in the land. We're getting ready for the things to come to their completion. So what we're seeing here in this chapter 10 of Genesis is absolutely extraordinary. All of this has come from the blessing of one man to his three sons in the foundational book of the Bible. What a, an amazing and what a beautiful revelation God has given us in his eternal word. Now, I have a poem to read you, wrote it for you. So... We'll do that and then we'll be done. The line of Shem. Children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Eventually Jesus would descend from him and he was the brother of Japheth the elder. Shem's sons were Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. And the sons of Aram were Uds, Hul, Gether, and Mash. The Arabs come from these boys. Some of them have their own harem. 
and others today spend shekels, which is the form of Israeli cash. Arfaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber, and to Eber were born Peleg and Jaktan too. Peleg is a name for us to remember because in Peleg's time, the earth was divided into who's who. Jaktan begot 13 sons, a whole big bunch indeed. Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, and Hadaram too. Also, Utsal, Dikla, Obal, and Abimael were of his seed. And Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab round out the whole slew. These 13 were the sons of Jaktan, a mouthful for sure. And they dwelt from Misha to Sefer, the mountains out east. Of these sons of Shem, some lines still endure, according to their nations from the greatest to the least. And so we finish listing the line of Noah's blood, all carefully given according to their generations. From these, the people were divided after the flood, all from these sons who have become the world's nations. What a treat to know what God has done, carefully leading us through many generations and making his funnel, which leads to his son, who would become the savior of the nations. Oh, great and awesome God, help us in thy light to trod. Keep us on the path of glory and may our lips spread the gospel story. To you, our highest praise we sing, for you have created us for your praise and your glory. And so on earth may every living thing proclaim the great marvel of Jesus' victory. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to speak about the table of nations and the great things you have done through the people of the world and for the people of the world. And Lord God, you know every heart here. You know who may or may not have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so I would like to ask that you would stir their spirit and ask them to look into these things and to check them out and to see if they're re real and if they are to challenge the bible and to accept it when they find out that it really is your word and that it holds the words of life and the key to understanding who you are who is the person of jesus christ our lord and savior and it's in his exalted name we pray amen